0: Raf Cormack's book, Midnight in Cairo, The Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties, tells the story of the lives of the women who were some of Egypt's biggest stars in the early 20th century. We are rerunning our conversation with Raf while we're on a break. And there are many other really wonderful older episodes um, that you could check out over the holidays, as well as our year-end episode, Best of 2021, that lists 10 books that we found remarkable in one way or another. And if you've enjoyed listening to us, there are a few things you can do to support the show. You can subscribe, rate us, share something about us on social media, or follow us on Twitter, at Bullock Books where we'll be sharing news about the upcoming season. Thank you and
1: enjoy. The next few years saw Rosal Youssef moving between various troops, picking up whichever job she could. One company she joined was led by the ambitious Okasha Brothers, who were famous for both their flamboyance and theatrical success, if not always for their good acting. In her memoirs, Rose described the brothers' eccentricity, recording that they did not believe in rehearsals, so the actors just learned their lines before the performance and hoped for the best. The company's star actress, Victoria Musa had a problem with her throat that kept her from laughing with any volume. So, Rose claimed, another actress would stand behind the curtain and make laughing noises in the appropriate places. While part of that theatre company, she faced another attack, not from the audiences this time, but from the troupe's main source of funding. Again, the attack involved the clothes she wore, or didn't wear. And again, she emerged with her dignity intact. In her memoirs, written in the 1950s, Rose looked back at the event triumphantly. One summer day, she remembered, they were in Alexandria doing a series of performances, and the troop members were taking a break down by the sea. But when Rose got into her swimming costume and went down to where the Nile met the Mediterranean, she was in for a surprise. She did not know that the troupe's main financier, the conservative nationalist politician and banker Talat Harb, was also there by the water. A prominent figure in the early 20th century Egyptian politics and a supporter of the high arts, he is commemorated now with a statue that still stands at the centre of one of Cairo's busiest roundabouts. A financial backer that no theatrical company wanted to lose, Talat Harb was also a leading opponent of women's participation in the public sphere. So... When he saw a female member of his troop exposing herself in a bathing suit in front of everyone, he demanded that she immediately cover up or be sacked and sent back to Cairo. A few of Rose's friends in the troop tried to mediate. If she just apologised, they told her, they could smooth it over. But Rose, undaunted, said that she would not apologise. She had already faced criticism for, allegedly, wearing revealing clothing on stage, and she was not going to back down now she said that she would rather leave the troupe on the spot so that she could spend the whole day on the beach. And she did exactly that, while the prudish banker looked on. In fact, after leaving the troupe, Rose stayed on a few extra days and sat on the beach in her swimming costume just to annoy him.
0: Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Ursula Lindsay, and this is episode 63 of the Bulak podcast. Reading to you just now was our guest today, Raf Cormac, who was reading um, a story about the great Egyptian actress and journalist Rosal Youssef from his book Midnight in Cairo, which we'll be discussing today. Um, and Raf is joining us from Athens. Uh, I'm in Amman Jordan, and Marsha, as usual, is in Rabat, Morocco.
2: Right, from uh, where I have not budged, basically, for the last year.
0: Same here. <laughs> same here. No budging going on here either. Um, and we've just uh, surmounted quite a few technical difficulties, actually, in connecting the three of us. Um, and uh, we all have a few challenges with background sounds and imperfect mics. Uh, but hopefully uh, the sound will be good enough. And certainly I think the conversation is going to absolutely be worth it.
2: So I will start out by telling you that Roth Cormack has a, got his PhD in Egyptian theater from the University of Edinburgh, and he's currently a visiting researcher at Columbia University, although he's actually in, in Athens. Um, he uh, was co-editor of Book of Khartoum, which was a collection of short stories that came out from Kama Press and also edited the collection Book of Cairo. Another collection of short stories from Kama Press, and has a translation in the new book of Ramallah that was is just out this month, I believe, from Kama Press. He um, was previously the practitioner of two blogs, Curiosities and Old Paper, and um, and but currently you can find him sharing things on Twitter. Many stories from old Arabic newspapers uh, about music, theater, crime, and other wonderful things. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today, Ruff. Thanks so
1: much for having me on.
2: We're so delighted to have you. I really enjoyed reading Midnight in Cairo, the Divas of Egypt's Roaring Twenties. There's so many wonderful anecdotes like the one you just read from. Um, I wondered if you could start out by giving us um, sort of an overview of what's in the book, which, you know, it says twenties, but really there's, you know, you know, there's stuff from the yeah.
1: 1890s through the 1940s in there. It's sort of yeah. So what I think uh, I was trying to do with this book, and as you said, I've, I sort of developed recently a slight obsession with Cairo in the in the 20s and 30s, uh, and of posting lots of stuff on it online. And it all started, I suppose, with my PhD, which was on uh, sort of adaptations of Oedipus in 20th century Egypt, and therefore the Egyptian theater. And I just found all of these incredible stories which sort of tell of the world of of Egyptian entertainment in in the 20s and 30s. And so what I'm sort of trying to do with this is ask the question basically what, what what it was like, what it would have been like to be in Egypt at that time. And in order to do that, I found that the sort of the most effective thing to do is Tell it through the life stories of the women who lived through it, and you know the women who were actresses and singers and theatre troop leaders, cabaret owners, all of that kind of stuff. And I think there, it's a period which is very, which people are very interested in now in across the Middle East. You know, looking back at this time of the twenties and thirties, and it's both. A fascinating and kind of hopeful period but also one that we shouldn't look back with entirely rosy goggles on uh and i think it helps you know looking through women's lives helps both see the potential but also the kind of the many difficulties that there were in this uh this much romanticized era
2: right in, in even in the cases where women were very successful um that there were um, dark sides to that as well
1: exactly yeah so and what i try like you say i go back to the start of this entertainment business so the, the focus is really kind of is geographical in, in a way it's kind of the area of esbakea you know surrounding emir street and opera square and the various different sort of kinds of entertainment that were there uh which really sort of get going in the late 19th century although it did exist before then uh, and uh reached their kind of peak in the 20s and 30s and um yeah so like you say i mean their stories that, that story uh about rosa Yusuf, which i just read really, I think, captures some of the uh, the real opportunities that were becoming available to women, women in the period. And and it's the women in this book who kind of show how they are putting themselves into the public sphere, are uh, kind of claiming their position in modern Egypt, in a newly independent Egypt uh, since, since the early 1920s, uh, how they're both... Putting themselves into that and insisting that they should be there but also the uh the pushback that they that they have from people who are otherwise sort of great nationalist heroes
2: right right i was i mean i don't know Talat harb uh, other than you know seeing his name on on signs and stuff so it was uh, sort of startling and wonderful to find him as a real person <laughs>
1: yeah i
0: i also think there's some other anecdotes about her that um speak to what you're talking about about some of the women that are featured in the book i mean they're so compelling um they're they're so interesting and but partly that's because they seem quite exceptional um or sort of at the forefront of of certain changes that are taking place and they assume that role for themselves, right? Of being exceptional. Um, I mean, actresses and performers anyway, have no lack of of ego, but then uh, yeah. a, a, a lot of these women have like really quite, you know, extraordinary lives. And I'm thinking about the the exchanges that you quote with Rosa Youssef, where people say, well, you're not like other women, or you're a man, like meant kind of as a compliment, um, or as a way of explaining how she can do what everybody else can't and how she insists in in those couple exchanges that you quote on on saying no i i'm a, i'm a woman like you don't have to make you don't have to call me a man to say that i can do these things or that it's okay for me to do these things uh, you yeah. know how she sort of insists on no i i'm 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 a, I'm a woman and i do these things
1: yeah and it's i mean like you say it's it's because this generation of uh, you know of entertainers, is really a vanguard, or sees itself as a vanguard of uh, women being in the public sphere. But also, I mean, and not just Rosal Youssef, many of them really revel in the kind of transgressiveness of what they're what they're doing in the twenties and thirties. I mean, I'm thinking as, of Munira Mahdeya as well, who in fact starts off her career in the early 20th century as a singer. Uh, and then becomes an actress in in the nineteen tens. Starts her own theater troupe, but is very keen always to say that she is playing the male role in the in all of the plays. You know, she's the great Egyptian actress who's who's playing this male role. And I mean Fatima Rushdie as well, another actress. It's constantly being told that she's not really a woman because you know her, you know she's too strong, she's not. She's too manly even at one point to play certain female roles, certain male roles. Sorry. I mean, uh but they but people like Munira Al Mahdeh as well caught it in the in the press. So she sends pictures of herself to the newspapers dressed up as a man. Uh she holds these big poker parties on her on her houseboat in the Nile. They kind of there's this sense that she is part of a vanguard and she's pricking the noses of anyone who can kind of who wants to tell her that she can't do something because she's a woman I mean and she revels in it and that's that's true of so many of these people except yeah except perhaps some who has a, a very different way of constructing her celebrity
2: right and I mean and who is powerful and amazing in in all her own ways and I didn't know that she was for instance like a union boss uh at the time um, I,
1: I mean, Um Kalsum was, I mean, you obviously cannot ignore Um Kalsum in in telling this story because she is the one person who really survived from the 1920s all the way, you know, into the 70s as a as a huge star. And when I was first researching it, I, I, I kind of, I suppose, in my head took a little bit against her because I thought, oh, she's playing this quite conservative role. Uh, as opposed to the sort of more transgressive role of the other women. But I think it would be, I think it's unfair to say, you know, to take against her. I think reading more into her life, you're, it's just so impressive how she manages to form her career, you know, take take almost total control of it. Yeah, as you say, become like head of the musicians union uh, and really she puts across occasionally in the press, I mean, particularly in the twenties and thirties, a kind of meek persona, Uh, but it seems to be largely just a persona.
0: I mean, I think you can both be, of course, impressed both with, you know, her, her talent and her ability um, to manage herself and to, and to be so successful and so powerful. And like, take a little bit against her compared to some of the other figures of the era. I mean, because her will to power is sort of, is a little terrifying. I've always felt that about Uncle So when you read about what she was like with her collaborators too. I mean, um, you know, there's stories about her like punishing people, like musicians and composers because they had like written for another artist by like not speaking to them for decades and stuff. I mean, she's, she's, you know, uh extraordinary, but for good and bad, like, she, you, yeah. you know what I mean? And, and she also has this, like, she kept herself so closed and so private. That's kind of what's fascinating about her. She made herself into an icon and, and like hid away so much of her yeah. true self. Like, you don't know which reminds me a bit of Mafu like Naki Mahfouz did something very similar, like kept his private life so private. And I feel like there's something about her of all f- becoming the icon, you know, uh, the ex- you know the ex- the, this extreme and acceptable public icon was was partly because she actually didn't share her herself, Where some of the other figures in the book, you know, their whole you know, a lot of their life gets, you know, spills out uh, in, in, and like you say, they kind of embrace the chaos of their life and put it on, on on a certain amount of display or their freedom.
1: Yeah, and I suppose I, if you were being cynical, which, which maybe you don't have to be, you know, they're both kind of strategies of creating celebrity. I mean, Muniro Mahdea, who is the kind of the big rival to Um Kalsum, uh, is a kind of polar opposite. In, in that respect, you know, she whereas Umkar sort of there's a there's a there's a great uh scene uh, that comes just after the the revolution the Free Officers Revolution where Umkalsum goes into the radio station and has herself filmed deleting old tapes or you know deleting old bits of tapes in which uh we assumed you know she she references the, the king. I mean it says in a newspaper article in I think it is, that she's, you know, deleting the bits of the old era. Um, but that's that's such a good summary of what of what she kind of does with her career, which is kind of delete these little bits when it becomes necessary. Uh, whereas Munira Mahdeya is sort of the total opposite, where she just adds these these wild stories and sort of perhaps even spreads these rumours herself. About her transgressiveness, I mean, both women have this same will to power that you're talking about with with Umkalsum. I think Munira hey, Matia has that as well.
2: Yeah, right. Well, she said. I mean, the, the was it she was it she who also um, was sabotaging, attempting to sabotage Umkalsum's career in in some ways.
1: Yeah, yeah, and uh, which which is. So the the story is as Um Kalsum is is coming up in the in the late twenties. Munira Mahdea is sort of planting stories against her in the press, uh, and you know, various other kinds of there's I the sense that I get is a lot of that stuff is also exaggerated later on and becomes a, a sort of myth. There's these stories about Munira Mahdeya casting spells on Umkalsoom, which uh, I mean there's also <laughs> Right, A misogyny. It was. It was
0: also par for the par for the course, right? These kinds of stories, like because then Kosum is supposed to have like assassinated Asmahan or something, basically, <laughs> or like you know, there were those kinds of stories that so supposedly they were all you know, and like you say, I think this was speculation in the press, although Of course, there were real rivalries, like professional rivalries, but. Um, the other thing that comes through so clearly is how important the press was. Like, is is this ecosystem of the performing arts and the press, uh, including kind of like a society gossip press and the interest of the public, not just in the performances, but in the performers' lives?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, totally. And and how you kind of play the press uh, really changes how how you're written into the historical record uh so I, I mean so there are various people who are sort of briefly mentioned in the book but whose stories kind of don't survive anymore because this, the press simply kind of didn't take an interest i mean i i think that's that's something that people who have written on Masreya say uh that partly uh she is not remembered uh, another another singer, Naimel musre, like uh, a, a very big singer of the of twenties and thirties, but who didn't really feature that much in the press uh, or write a memoir uh, so isn't remembered in the same way that the others are which, which is not to say the press always has to like you i mean someone like Yusuf Wakby, the actor uh was hated by almost all the press it seems uh, <laughs> but he's but they kept writing stories about him because they saw so that they were annoyed by him so much.
2: But they didn't cover his big South America tour, which I found disappointing.
1: Yeah, even though he sent them articles.
2: I know. I was offended on his behalf as I read that. Is were
0: you always decided to from the beginning more interested in telling the story of the female performers and singers and actresses, or is that something that evolved over time? Or because I, mean, I suppose there are there are male figures in this scene that. But the the book does kind of focus on the women of this yeah. time and this place.
1: Yeah, and there are—I uh, mean—a lot of important male figures who are who are covered. But I, I got the sense—I mean, to be very honest, what I what I really got me into this was was the idea that maybe you could tell a, write a biography of day Um but. Uh, it just didn't quite seem possible i didn't have all the material and then other people suggested that maybe building up around the scene the whole building up a whole world around it would would be a better way to go um and then i think uh if you're going to build a whole world uh as i think i said before that i think women's stories are just really the best lens to look at it through uh, because they really carry with them this sense, which I think is so important in the 1920s, of new possibilities, um, but also the various downsides. And, you know, I don't shy away from telling some of the, you know, a lot of the back of the stories where women are exploited. I mean, you get some great women who rise up and and really manage to sort of use uh, the scene to their advantage you know open up make money open up their own businesses and you know make their voices heard but you also get the stories of people who are chewed up and kind of spat out by this world so the most famous one is probably Imtasel Fawzi, who is a a sort of up-and-coming dancer actress singer in the 1930s, I and mean, she appears briefly in a in a movie, uh, and then decides in 1936 to open up her own uh, her own cabaret along with a, along with a partner, and she comes across the local group of uh, sort of heavies who control Esmeria, mm-hmm. and they demand some protection money, which either she can't afford or she doesn't want to give. Either way, she doesn't pay them and they start threatening her. She goes to the police but is ignored and eventually they kill her on stage uh, or just after she comes off stage in a performance. Um, so, I mean, when telling this story of, of the 20s and 30s in general, I think it's important to balance a kind of nostalgia, which which I don't object to actually, uh, I think it's uh, it's good to look back at a period and see what you can get from it, see what positive things uh, you can bring, but also with a sense of reality, too, that this is not a utopia.
2: Right. It was also a time of tremendous changes. And I think, uh, to me, some of the women were more successful at navigating um you know the technological changes from records to radio. Suddenly, film is a, a major thing. than than other women who sometimes seem defeated by the shift to film, for instance.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I mean, and also, I don't, I don't think it's this. The period of this history is exclusively told through men. I think that that's not true. I think the women have been have been represented in history, but I think the greats of this period, uh, are usually remembered as, you know, the men, the Muhammad Abdul Wahhabs, the Yusuf Wahbis, uh, George Abiyal and Saad Darwish,
3: who all kind of are
1: greats, but they're, you know, the pantheon of, uh, of the greats of Egyptian, um, uh, entertainment culture doesn't feature women as quite as prominently as it should. I mean, so you mentioned film, uh, a lot of the, the great early film directors were women. I mean, Aziz Amir, Fatima Rushdie made some films, Bahiga Hefers, all that. And, then, and I'm not saying they've been totally ignored, but they, I don't get the sense that they're centred quite as much as they could be or should be.
2: Right. And another thing I was curious about, um, so many of these women's lives end badly in one way or another, um, I think you know the murder was a bit singular, but you know other women like Munira, um, uh, die in in poverty, uh, being forgotten, uh, their career, having sort of skid out. It, was that also true of men, or is that something that's one can more associate with women entertainers?
1: I my sense is that that the narrative of a strong powerful woman who's kind of a little bit transgressive ending her life uh, alone as it were is a kind of story that's only really ever told about women in that in that tragic way i mean not you know globally speaking i think if a man die, you know dies alone as it were it's kind of not even necessarily seen as a tragedy in the way that it is as as when a woman dies alone. I don't know if you agree with that.
2: Right, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, I I guess I I can't point to any... I guess I would, yeah, it's true. If a man was very powerful and very famous and then later in life he retired and wasn't, I wouldn't feel that it was a a terrible thing, no. But yes, with Munira, I I felt sad about her.
0: Well, and I think what Raph is saying is that you're meant to feel sadder about it, maybe, than than about a man. That somehow the fact that she's lost her physical appeal or that she doesn't have a family that's like more of a tragedy, th- like than in the than in the than in the case of a man. Um, or I don't know how many stories they did where they went and found old actors or performers and and showed their fall from grace. I think. I mean, up to this day, female performers, I, there's more of an interest in their fall from grace.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's definitely true. And it's and I found when when writing the book, it's a it's a very kind of hard way of telling a story to get away from. I mean, every, I mean, everyone dies. Kind of, no one's life ends happily. I mean, they everyone ends. By death. <laughs>
2: Right, and it's it's like come come on, Uncle Sum and right at the peak of the mountain. Right. I
0: mean, the other thing is you, the, the book is very much about this particular place in Cairo, which, which, I mean, we know and sort of don't know, like I kept trying to picture the way it was. And again, as Marcia says, there's been so much like incredible change and violent change, including on the level of the built environment in Cairo in the 20th century, that like a lot of the buildings and establishments that you mentioned aren't there anymore. Um, and the whole atmosphere of the neighborhood has also changed tremendously. Like it's just been gone through so, so many evolutions, but of course it is there. It is in downtown Cairo. Like, you know, I, I became, have, yeah.
1: I've, uh, you know, as writing the book, I did a number of walks kind of through the area where places were to see what still survives. And there's, I mean, there, there were two really, in in my view, sort of two different areas uh, to Esbakea. There was the Ahmededin Street area, which was quite, you know, a wide street with nice newly built cabarets and kind of very plush and expensive and then there was uh, the area more to the east of the gardens, which is you know like Clock Bay Street and um, Wischelberg and all of that area, which had, which was a little more sort of clubs down side alleys and and that kind of thing. Um, in that area to the east, I mean it it seems to have totally changed, but a lot of the shells of the buildings do still survive. So the old. Uh, uh, Arabic theater, what it was called, Masra Al Arabi, I think, or Masri, I forget his name now, but on, on the top of Aziz Street, turned into a cinema, but then the cinema closed down, but the shell of the building is still there, sort of fills with old washing machines. And the Alhambra Casino, which was al-Masreya's casino, then turned into Suad Mahersen's, the shell of that building is also still there, so I think it's a mechanic um but yeah i mean it's sort of like the environment has grown around it whereas on a street you can really see sort of a little bit what it have been like a lot of the buildings have now been knocked down and turned into newer cinemas the diana palace is is the one i think was built in the 40s still survives and the chefrizard casino which have you guys mm-hmm. i don't know if you guys have been to but i mean metamask used to
0: have yeah part. i have <laughs> yeah yeah
1: I think the interior has probably changed quite a lot, but that was the old started as the Printania Theatre, then turned into the Pelota Court, um, which which was which is another strange thing I had no idea about in Courage nightlife that the the Basque game of Pelota was so popular.
0: Yeah, me neither. And that the games would start of mi- at midnight—that's something that hasn't changed. Like I. I, I w- you quote at one point some impresario who's complaining about these Egyptian musicians. Like I can't get them to start work before midnight or go to bed before dawn. And that is how the art sector, I feel like still functions in Egypt today. Like people were always making movies in the middle of the night and stuff. Um, So your title of your book is perfect.
1: (laughs) Yeah. but, but, But yeah, I suppose to go back to what we were talking about the, uh, there is a sense that everything has sort of moved out of a Medellin Street in Nespakeia and it's a it's a similar narrative arc to, you know, the stories of women's lives which end in uh, dying alone or what have you, but that you know, it's the Weimar Berlin arc, as you might call it, that great nightclub uh, uh whatever nightclub scenes always end in this decline. Which is both true but probably obscures some of the complexities.
2: Right, of nightclubs moving elsewhere and just being different in different time periods. It's it's not as if there's no nightlife anymore.
1: I know. That, I mean, there's, you, actually you go to what was Esbic Air, you can find lots of, you know, quite seedy nightclub bars. But I imagine in the 1920s, a lot of the bars were quite seedy then as well.
0: Well... What do you think is the... You said that there's a fascination with this time and place, and I think you're absolutely right. I, I mean, I have some thoughts, but what do you think is the source or the, the, the... what? What is it that plays into this, you know, just ongoing interest with this, with this scene?
1: I think, I mean, I think at the basis of all of it, is this idea that this was a time when new things were possible and there was a a chance for kind of change. The 20s and 30s in Egypt, when, you know, it had just become independent and people were really talking about what the new Egypt could be. Lots of people were disagreeing. Uh, And, you know, there was a sense that uh, women were now part of the conversation. That's also, I mean, people are are very interested in the the cosmopolitan-ness of it all, as a kind of nostalgia about that. I mean, people look back at it and um, and look at today and see very little hope, and see kind of. I think a lot of people see a a society that's closed off to the kind of cosmopolitanism which was there in the nineteen twenties and thirties, and and partly, job. You know, one's job as a historian is to say, on the one hand, actually, the nineteen twenties and thirties wasn't great. There was this so-called cosmopolitanism, but arguably it was very exploitative and most of the people in the country could not be part of that. Um, but also to say, you know, I don't want to stop people looking back at history and saying, here's a time when things could be different and taking some, yeah, some real messages from that time.
0: Well, and there's, uh, what I, one of the things I really liked was the, like, um, the way that, the art being performed itself was so hybrid, like that they're rewriting European plays for a local audience and like changing them. And for example, adding music, because that was required, like, and, 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 and this Franco Arab review, this idea of a kind of mix of, of genres, some of them coming from like, you know, a traditional almost skit based comic, Traditions that were local and then like you know french vaudeville like all of that is very appealing to me you know this kind of creativity and mixity in on that level
1: yeah and and also yeah it's about allowing uh the history of egyptian entertainment to be part of that cosmopolitan egypt I, we could devote devote a whole podcast to the idea of cosmopolitan egypt but uh just to be able to say, no, this wasn't necessarily, cosmopolitanism isn't just Europeans uh, in their sort of closed off areas, not interacting with Egyptians. There's an alternative, you know, a counter history to it in which Egyptians were were part of whatever we want to call cosmopolitanism, multiculturalism or or something.
2: Yeah, I was also, uh, you know, really um, taken by how, how much these acts moved around, not just to Palestine and spending time in Beirut and uh, taking the very dangerous trip, apparently, to Baghdad, but also traveling to South America to do shows there, which apparently we we hear were very successful. Um, I I and then also North American, I, I, particularly it seemed in the book, um, African American performers coming to to Cairo to be part of that scene as well.
1: Yeah, and I mean, it's, when I uh, post things on Twitter, as we talked about, I, ha- I sort of have an account where I just post random things which I've seen, which are fun, uh, and sometimes people like them, and sometimes people kind of are okay, but they, they mostly ignore them. The things that people really seem to be interested in are, you know, A, stars like Um Kalsum. she she always does well, Uh, you know, other, you know, Fatima Rushdie, but also this idea that in the 20s and 30s, there was this transnational world where people could go from, you know, take the train from Cairo to Jerusalem to Beirut and then go on to Baghdad or, you know, across North Africa or even go on tour to South America. That people, uh, in my experience, are very interested by this idea that there was so much movement at the time.
2: But there was not movement. So I, I saw in the book that there were stories, um, uh, particularly sources from, say, the Chicago Defender, of, of musicians coming from the U.S. to Cairo. But I didn't see uh, them traveling to perform in, in North America.
1: Yeah, there's uh, n- as far as I could work out, none of the people who are really seriously featured in the book did that. But, there, I mean, uh, the violinist Sammy O'Shoa, who probably gets mentioned, but I mean, only briefly, who was probably the biggest violin player in, in the 20s and 30s. He did go on, on a North American tour. Uh, a lot of Egyptian films get shown in North America as well. I mean, there's a big Arab community in New York, supposedly, in the 20s and 30s, and there. so the films do travel, and there's an archive in, in Albany in New York of all the films that were shown. You, can, you know, they had to submit their scripts to censorship. Um, but it doesn't seem as big as South America, which was a a much more popular touring destination, for traveling Arab troops.
2: Because just because the audiences were better or.
1: It's I, my sense is, is probably that maybe the trip was easier. I'm not sure, but they had guarantees of audience in more places. Perhaps if you go to North America, you have like New York, Boston, but maybe that's about all you can do. Whereas in South America you can travel around. I mean, I don't know if that's speculation.
0: I'm sure they were looking, they were, it was the business decision first and, and foremost, right? The the tours, it seems like. I mean, um uh the, the other thing I think that comes through about um how this history is viewed is just like so much ambivalence. Over, I mean, I like also how in the neighborhood, like you say, there's 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 the high end theaters and you know the more seedy clubs, and they're all close to each other. Like you go from high to quote unquote low art in a in in a short walk, right? I mean, it's all mixed, and the performers themselves move from one to the other, and then you see in the way it's sort of perceived and talked about the sort of mix of feelings where there's kind of waves of. uh, sort of cracking down on the morals of the, of, of the area or of the shows. I didn't know that belly dancing was ever made illegal in Egypt. Like I really didn't know that, um, you know, It's a
1: uh, uh, strange uh, way that the belly dancing being made illegal, that, it, that it's, I mean, at least according to one story that it's, uh, you know, it's specifically uh, th- this thing called, but because it's a kind of belly dancing which has sort of been developed in the West and then kind of reimported. It. It's a this sort of wild story of of you know Arabic dancers, Egyptian dancers going to say the the, the 1893 World Ex- Exhibition in Chicago and everyone being uh, amazed by this uh, by their style of dance and then in America and Europe sort of developing dance du ventre or belly dance which is sort of somehow related to more traditional arabic dances but a, 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 a pastiche of and then that becoming very popular and then sort of coming back into egypt but being banned so it's not all dances that are bad but very specifically rocks and a button
0: right but and also then you get into this question of like you know judges and policemen sort of determining what dance is 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 to be banned. you know like they'll 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 know it when they see it of the dances I mean um uh and 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 then of course at some point that must have ended because because then there was in Egyptian cinema like there's often like a dance is featured right there's usually often a scene and Uh, in which there's 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 singing and this kind of like very I'm sure not not very traditional like cinematic kind of belly dancing that's that's clearly you know in the outfits and everything like has has had a lot of innovations
1: yeah Uh, but I mean to to get back to your broader point about sort of the the idea of it's an amoral or you know improving theater and low and high yeah it becomes it's so difficult to really actually separate any of it so i mean you have i mean going on dance and singing and theater but really they're all totally overlapping and the people who are dancers are, are later appearing in the theater or or singing um but but at the back of everyone's head there is this kind of hierarchy of high theater and sort of low dancing and and also added to that that the red light district uh, was was very close to that
2: and but also high and low audiences right i mean sometimes you could put on a performance that you felt was quite um high entertain highbrow entertainment but you know if you di- were doing it in front of a drunken audience that's shouting things at you it's not had heckled come off. you yeah
1: but then, and then you have you know Yusuf Wahbi's troupe are very uh, keen to which Little Ramsey's troupe, which becomes the sort of most well financed and probably most successful acting troupe, I mean except perhaps Fatima Rushdie's in the twenties and thirties, and they're obsessed with policing both the audience and the content of the plays that you put on, which are sort of these melodramatic sort of stories in which everyone gets killed or falls in love and has an affair or whatever. It's not kind of what we would class necessarily high theater, but he's obsessed, has all these rules for what the audience can do and what they can't do because he wants to, when everything is so close together, you have to build these kind of more imaginary walls.
2: Well, I I sympathize. I mean, you don't want people's cell phones going off. You don't want (laughs) drunken patrons jumping on the stage really but doesn't doesn't a really small
0: part of you though because 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 I've never been I mean I've doesn't a very small part of you find it like somewhat appealing to at least witness like an audience that is that is that unruly and sort of like the you know, not necessarily like disrespectful to the performers, but that has not been sort of coached into the like respectful silence, you know, of, of kind of modern, modern audience behavior. Like, I don't know. I think there's always something I find a little bit appealing too about, you know, uh, the idea of people just reacting very spontaneously to what's on stage.
1: And it's something in the in the sixties and seventies that a lot of Arab playwrights try and sort of recapture, not necessarily unruly, but this idea of interacting with audiences,
2: right? Like Saadat, right.
1: uh Exactly, right? Or Yusuf Adrian as well.
2: or even the
0: singers apparently, like they counted on the audience reacting so much, right? That's a, that's an anecdote where. Uh, uh, Munir Al-Mahdiya is thrown off by performing in front of an empty, yeah, uh, because she needs the like exclamations of the audience and stuff. Yeah, right. It it was such a symbiotic relation. When you listen, when you look at Um Sum concerts, like you those audience shots where people are like, you know, biting their handkerchiefs and like near fainting. Like it's they're they're feeding each
2: other, right? The audience and the performer.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally.
2: So one thing I wanted to ask about was all these, the memoirs that you talk about reading and talk about the the stars writing. I wondered if this was a sort of a later phenomenon, if there was a particular decade when suddenly we were flooded with stars memoirs, or if they were coming out all along.
1: It's, uh, I mean, the, the answer uh, short answer is the 1960s is when things really sort of seem to get going. Maybe like a little bit late 50s. So, I suppose what you would call after the kind of end of the the particular golden age of of cabaret and and acting and maybe more into a different kind of theatre and film uh, is when really a lot of the memoirs start to come up. 1960s is so Fatima Rushdie in that decade publishes four separate memoirs. Uh, all sort of covering slightly different aspects of her career in different ways, but telling a, a few of the same stories. Uh and Badia Musabni's memoirs come out I think probably early 70s. The um I mean the appearance of Al-Masra magazine, the 1960s one, uh leads to a kind of flood of memoirs because they serialize a lot of them. And more of these magazines, like koer Kib, also serializes some memoirs of Nagiba Raheni I think that comes in the in the forties actually, so I uh putting my point off, but yeah Yusuf Wafi's memoirs also come out at the same time there's this there is a big time when all the memoirs come out, i suppose when people's careers start to you know come to an end and they're looking back at them and there's there's so many i mean all almost all the i mean all the women who are covered in this book uh Left some kind of autobiographical writing, and almost all of them left memoirs like this. Munir al mahdeya never did, although in the 20s, some selections of things which are called her memoirs are published uh, in a Masra magazine. They're sort of reference to having seen them, but they're, I suppose they're lost, we'd call it. Um, and they're, I mean, they're really fascinating documents sort of literary and historical documents of the way that uh these people constructed their careers and you know retold their careers the probably the most famous one is use of because it's so gossipy and sort of egotistical slightly
0: sounds Um, great
1: yeah (laughs) it's it's a really fun read and it's an it's an actor's memoir so it's exactly what you would expect a kind of dramatic actor's memoir to be like, you know, I was the greatest at this point, and everyone says not, you know. Um, but they're, they're all there, and and yeah, to see how, to, how people construct their careers is interesting. The women's careers and, and memoirs, I found, one thing I found very interesting about them was that they barely ever mention any kind of uh, female solidarity, basically. They don't really mention the actress friends that they might have had or the the friends who were singers. Uh, It's all about constructing themselves as this kind of, as we were saying before, as this sort of leader of a vanguard of new women coming through in the 20s and 30s. So, I mean, for instance, Fatima Rushdie, who wrote these four different memoirs, basically never mentions the fact that she had three sisters who are also all performers
0: there's also they don't talk a lot about their origins often it sounds like like a lot of your stories say sort of have to pick up those women's biographies as they enter the stage because there's very little or sort of conflicting information about their early lives and they don't seem to go into that much I guess
1: yeah, or or sometimes I'll sort of have a uh a quite seemingly mythologized version of of the story. Yeah, but early lives of, of of all these women are subject to a lot of controversy. I mean, I think partly because a lot of these women had extremely tough early lives and didn't necessarily want to talk about them. Uh, I mean, we mentioned Umkalsum being sort of. Standing apart from a lot of these women, one way in which she did is she's, I think, the only one whose father didn't die when she was a child. I think all, I think all of the women their 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 fathers died, and and you can see how maybe you know that is a a gateway into having to make money and therefore being shoved onto the stage, perhaps you know against their will, and. And they largely came from poverty, uh, largely uneducated. I mean, it's that's one of the things that is quite amazing about all of these stories: that they were almost exclusively poor, uneducated women who managed to, who really managed to make something of themselves. And that's one thing which can be said at least for the entertainment industry is that it, it managed to give at least this small section of women that opportunity.
2: I really loved how many of them managed to take control of their stories and say, blot out things or um create confusion about parts of their lives that they didn't want talked about. Um, You know, contemporary world, it seems like there's so many things revealed about you that you might prefer not to, to be revealed, but that they managed to take control of, of their own narrative in, in, you know, it to certain degrees, of course, you know the the press also having being able to to uh, shape narratives uh, as well.
1: Yeah, and it's a, it's a constant battle with the press being, you know, of uh, exactly, but a battle that quite often they they win, not always. But... And
0: and so you read all these biographies, and clearly you also immersed yourself in the archives of the press from the time were were those your main sources for the book what was your process like were you
1: yeah I mean I those are really the two main sources so all those uh, memoirs and the press which is which there's an enormous enormous amount of uh of magazines that were started up on and off I mean Rosa Youssef uh, and Masra Sabah are are big ones but there's you know Lots of them that ran for sort of a year and then folded, um, and in National Library of Egypt and other places they exist and they're always in competition with each other and they're full of full of stories and it, so I they're the two main sources. Squaring those two sources is, is sometimes difficult and often you know I've just in the book said oh well this is what the memoir says this is what the press said at the time you decide kind of thing. Uh there's also I mean, there's been some really great academic work done in Arabic on on this stuff, which uh uh which I use. I mean Ratiba Hipney me, did a did a very good book on Munir Mathdea uh, uh, at the end. So they, they tend not to like footnotes in uh in sort of trade publications. Uh, but obviously having <laughs> come up through academia I'm obsessed with footnotes uh so I decided to uh meet them halfway and just leave a kind of um a bit at the end of further reading uh which goes into uh which goes into that there's a there's a slight difficulty in some of the stuff that's that's written later uh is that some of it is over mythologized and some stories are sort of told uh without uh much evidence i mean that's clearest in the case of shafia al-ibtia is the first a, a woman from the 1890s who was the great musical owner of the 1890s uh, in the 60s uh, a film and a book and a play about her were published which which have some amazing stories in but also have some things which sort of couldn't possibly have happened she was said to have You know, met Sir Darwish in 1924 or something, a year after he died. I can't remember what, there's some obvious historical inaccuracies in them. So, and that's the thing that I've sort of, that anything dealing with this period has to come up against, how far you go into mythologization and how far you're a stickler for exactly what happened, which is probably sometimes impossible to say.
2: Sure, I mean, so some of the stories must have happened Quite in view of the press, like the whole the singer, the baby in the bay chapter. Um, Mm -hmm. uh,
1: But even that, I mean, which is a story uh, of uh, Fatma Siri who had an affair with Hoda Shahrawi's son, and then there was a child which he denied uh, paternity of. Eventually, she goes into the law courts and fights for sort of six or seven years and manages to win. the right of Paternity, which was extremely well covered in the press. Uh, and one magazine serialized a kind of 16 part uh, account of the story from Fatima Siri's perspective. But still, we don't really have the Sharawi family's perspective on it.
2: Right. Yeah, we don't know exa- exactly what Hodo's role was in it. Um, Which, in a way, is the
0: most fascinating. I mean, there, 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 there's a very fascinating element to that. Is that is that is that you have the the singer pitted against possibly a feminist icon, whose son has 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 not been raised to treat women that well. It turns out. I mean, it's it's a, it, there's so much there, right? There's so much narrative potential there, um, so much that you want to to know. Um, and then I was gonna ask you with with a lot of the recordings and the movies sometimes with the movies you say that there's no um I mean that they haven't survived so all you have is descriptions of the films how hard was it to like find you know I mean someone like muri Mahdeya, obviously there are recordings and 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 other famous artists but were, were there ones where it was very hard to like f- sort of see what their work had been or th- were not much survived.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, so one example of that if from the 1920s. There's generally pretty good. I mean, I'm, as I'm sure you guys do, you can look on YouTube, and, and a lot of songs are there. But there's also the MR Foundation in Lebanon, who who are really doing a great job of of digitizing and putting online lots of old 78s. But there's the case of shafi who. Uh, did record some songs and they're available in they exist in the national library of egypt but when i went they had not yet been digitized and and you can only go to the national library of egypt you can't get out the 78 put on a record you have to listen to what's been digitized Uh, and as far as i'm aware uh, that's i mean they're the only recordings of her songs that i'm aware of existing i mean i'm sure somewhere else they do um, so I haven't been able to listen to any of them, which is annoying, obviously. but a lot of the songs of the 20s and 30s you can get to.
0: Uh, online. We'll put some links in the show notes, um, to some of these sources, I think, because of course, after reading about these, these women, you, you, you one becomes very curious to, yeah. to, to hear their voices, to, to see what you can of their work. Yeah.
2: Yeah I think that I've become very attached to to some to most of them.
1: <laughs> and I mean the the other thing uh that is interesting to talk about is the is the literature of the period uh which I I would love to be able to put together a kind of compilation of short stories about Cairo's nightlife district or you know or the entertainment industry from the 20s and 30s. Because no not a huge, huge amount exist, but some do. Uh short story writers, uh there's Mahmoud Kermel, I um cited hi he, he writes a story about sort of a love affair with a dancer, and in old Egyptian magazines there's lots of um not really. lots, but a, a number of short stories about actors. There are even which I haven't been able to find, cases of uh Singers and actresses writing their own short stories, which I've hmm. seen references to, but I've not been able to actually find. That would be great to find.
3: Yeah,
2: I mean, um... when I looked in the, you know, for the crime issue of Arabic Quarterly and looked in the crime magazines, there were just actually thousands of these largely unnamed, unauthored, you know, with no anonymously written, you know, uh, short stories about about crime
0: and and that are set in this. uh in partly in the sort of nightlife setting yeah yeah I mean of course there's um in Midak Ali in Naguib Mahfouz's novel there's the whole storyline of the sort of ambitious sensual young woman who ends up uh sort of taking a lover but then falling into prostitution and it's I'm pretty sure it's an when her old boyfriend from the neighborhood finally runs into her, it's in this district, it's in Azbaqeya. And uh, she's at a bar with a bunch of foreign soldiers, which was also this big element, right? That the British and Australian soldiers were would go out there for, for fun and, and cause all sorts of trouble. And, and this was also a big part of the some of the 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 criticism and the and the concern about moral issues. Um so yeah, and,
1: the, and the British blame the Egyptians, of course.
2: <laughs> right, for right for being immoral you know, luring their soldiers who would otherwise have been very upright young men.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I mean there's clearly um and 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 of course in the Mafus novel it 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 being Mafu is like it's not uh even though there is a clear sort of nationalist you know i would you know message to the book it's always a bit more nuanced or interesting than than just that um so you know her her, her, and I think his depiction overall of of nightlife in Cairo is, is is not just a sort of moralistic one but in in this instance there is clearly this 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 nationalist concern the other thing that surprised me a bit in the book and I don't maybe I shouldn't have been was how political a lot of the uh singers and actresses were I I guess I I assumed and maybe that's condescending on my part that they would be you know, busy with their work and their business and want, not want to stick their neck out. And and on the contrary, like they got into all sorts of trouble uh, supporting, you know, mostly the nationalist cause.
1: Yeah, I mean, Tahea Karioka is the most outstanding example of that who, I mean, who literally joined a left-wing organization and, and was sent to prison for it for some months. I mean, you
3: yeah. mm. uh, know,
1: but yeah, so many of them, Did and Munira and her songs and and uh, yeah Fatima Rushdie put on this version of Julius Caesar which was seen to be critical of the government and was then censored. Yeah, they're all sort of testing these political lines at a time when women are excluded from formal politics.
0: Right. Yeah. No, they were risk takers. It's, uh, it's, it's fascinating. Um, well, maybe we will wrap it up here. I mean, there's, there's a million more stories to tell, but people should, you know, turn to the book for that.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you very much uh, for talking.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. And, um, so we're going to put some links, uh, to, uh, to, to sources and archives if we can in the show notes and, um, We're going to end with a bit of uh, the music of uh, Munir al-Mahdiyya.
2: Thanks again for for listening, and thank you, Raf, for being with us. Yeah, thank you so much.